This is Game Designed Unboxed, inspiration to publication on the No Direction Network. Danielle, Denise, and Ben interview tabletop designers on the games they've made. Together, they unbox how a game went from inspiration to publication. All right. Thank you for joining me, Denise, and Danielle for Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration to Publication, Episode 16, Orphans and Ashes. Today, we're joined by Ryan Costello, designer of Orphans and Ashes, LFG Storytime with uh, Dick and a writer for various RPGs. Ryan, so glad to meet you and be talking with you. Good to meet you too, Denise. To get started, could you share a little bit about how you got into the gaming industry? Yes, yes, I can. I don't. <laughs> I, the question is where to begin because my ah. first real step into anything kind of professional was founding uh, the No Direction Network back when it was three point five Private Sanctuary. It's a podcasting network, and that started in two thousand and eight, which led to me getting my first RPG writing credits. And this is I'm I'm, I'm trying to do this as quickly as possible because it is fairly removed from what eventually became my board game credits. Oh, you're good. But yeah, so I started a network. I started interviewing publishers that were basically becoming these one-on-one mentoring sessions that I was just like, wow, this is amazing. I am getting all the information that some people might pay for at like what a university course would be in RPG writing, which didn't really exist at the time. And so I was also forging these relationships with publishers that would then become... Uh, opportunities for me to get into the RPG writing space. And then I was just regularly getting writing credits. In fact, it became something that anytime I wanted, I could just make room in my schedule, contact one of the publishers and odds were I was going to be able to get a project and get, uh, you know, the next, the next writing uh, credit, which is really cool. And that led to my job at Blind Ferret, which is the publishers of Orphans and Ashes. So Blind Ferret is a unique company in very, just so many ways. It is an entertainment company slash a media company. And the advertising side, which is the media side, kind of funds the creative side and then allows us to have all these cool opportunities. So like if uh, someone needs an ad that has animation, we've got an animation studio. The animation studio is mostly there to be at the beck and call of the advertising side, or at least it was, but also while we're waiting for advertising opportunities that need an adver- uh, need animation, we can go and do our own animation projects and try and get things off the ground there, which is actually what's happened. We've now become publishing slash advertising slash animation studio, and we are regularly getting animation uh, projects. So one of those side things that it's like, what do we do with these creative people that we've got on the roster just in case for the advertising side was game design. So the publishing side has these uh, web comics that have been going on for basically as long as web comics have been a thing. Our main two ones are at least I can do and looking for group and uh, blind ferret and merchant, uh, they design and develop their own merchandise. They, we get it manufactured elsewhere, but Anytime we want something done, we don't go and find like, oh, what's a company that we can hire to make a board game for us? We would just be like, all right, we're going to figure out how to make board games now and we're going to design it in-house. And so I got into the company because as a freelancer, I pitched them the idea of doing a a looking for group, which is LFG, box set RPG. They liked it. They bought it from me. I designed it for them. I sent it off and they didn't do anything with it. And eventually they hired me as a full-time staffer to develop this same project that I'd worked on as a freelancer. And eventually we got it out to market and it was uh, one of our more successful 
looking for group merchandise, um, you know, items, products, products. That's the word. It was one of our <laughs> more popular looking for group products. And so the follow up to that, we decided was going to be some kind of board game. So my boss, Ryan Somer, just said, in the next couple of months, pitch me a variety of looking for group board games. We're going to figure out which one we're going to do. And that was the first time that I'd been professionally asked to design a game. And of the games that I pitched, the game that was originally called Orphan Quest and became eventually Orphans and Ashes was the one he liked the most. Oh my gosh, that is amazing. And for anyone who hasn't played Orphans and Ashes, how do you play it? Orphans and Ashes is a tile laying game in which you are building an orphanage that is on fire and you are going in, you are dealing with the fire to try and get to the orphans and the orphans are how you score points. It is a what we call a cat and mouse strategy game because it is two players, at least in the base game. Uh, one of them is Kale, who is the main character and the hero of Looking for Group. And he believes there's good in this world. He wants to go in there and try and save the orphans' lives, pick them up, carry them to safety. The more orphans that Kale carries out the front door or out of any of the exits, the more points the Kale player gets. gets. Then there's the Richard player. And Richard and Kale have a, a really interesting Dynamic, relationship. Yeah. yeah. We call it uh, Best Frenemies, and <laughs> the idea is that Richard is an undead warlock. He needs the souls of the innocent to fuel his evil magic, and there's nothing more innocent than an orphan. And so if these orphans die in a fire, that's just a waste of a perfectly good soul that he could be using for his dark magic. So he wants to go in there and get to the orphans before they die in a natural fire. Uh, but he knows that if Kale ever catches him doing it, then uh, Kale's just going to ruin the whole experience by giving him a big, long speech about morality and mortality, and it ruins the fun for Richard. So Richard needs to get in there, get away from Kale so that he doesn't have line of sight on him, and then use his powers to, you know, reap the orphan souls. And Kale, meanwhile, has to get in there, follow Richard to make sure he's not doing anything bad, carry as many orphans as he can, and eventually get them to an exit because he's only scoring points once he's got them out. So the longer he's in the orphanage, the longer he has to wait to score his points, whereas Richard just has to zip around a corner when Kale's not looking, and then he can score his points. So that's where the cat and mouse strategy comes in. We call it the strategic game of orphan burning, <laughs> which is a joke subtitle, but is also accurate. We stand by it. We stand by that it is a strategic game and that the characters or the players are always reacting to what the other player is doing and trying to get uh, a leg up on them. And it's actually uh, surprisingly well balanced in that you will uh, the, the points will constantly be very close together and will usually come down to a point or two. Uh, to determine who the winner is. That is so true. I always thought that as Richard, it would be so much easier to win the game because you're just blasting orphans. But I tend to win as uh, Caleb more than I do as Richard. And it is really fun putting those little orphan meeples on, or not even meeples, like little plastic figurines, trying to carry them all and see how many you can fit onto it. That must have been fun yeah, to design. Okay. So <laughs> we haven't talked about the components yet, but the components are super fun for this game. We've got four different types of, uh, of uh, miniatures in it. You've got Kale, who is, you know, our elf hero, and he's got his arms up, kind of looks like he's just doing a muscle man pose but it's deceptive. There's multi-purpose for the reason he's got his arms up and in the, that flex pose. That's because the orphans who have their arms up kind of like running around screaming, their thumbs are attached together and there's just enough loop between their arms and uh, Kale's head that, oh, sorry, the orphan's head, that you can actually loop an orphan through Kale's arm. So just to demonstrate it here, here's the Kale miniature. I know people listening can't see it. 
But there you go. You hook an orphan onto Kale. It is totally stable. It was one of the most satisfying experiences in the world when these prototypes came in, and it worked 100% as I envisioned it. And then uh, Kale's walking around with the orphans, and you actually can stack as many orphans as you, the player, can balance on Kale. That's the rule. And, uh, and if you drop any of them, then the board scores a point, and uh, it's, it's Kale's fault. And so there's a little bit of pushing your luck and dexterity in trying to figure out just how many orphans you want to carry before you finally make your way to the exit, giving Richard the opening that he's probably been waiting for to just kind of go wild inside. Uh, and then the other two components are Richard, who um, we'll talk in a second about balancing Richard and Kale's uh, not just power, but fun aspect. He doesn't really do anything as far as miniatures go. Yeah. But then the final component is, uh, it's in that box somewhere. There the you go. Fire. We've got the fire pieces. Yep. And the fire pieces have a little plug on the base and all of the other bases have a little, you know, a little innie so that you can connect them Lego style so that when someone is on fire, they are literally on fire and it connects snugly. It comes off really easily. If you've never just played with the physical components of Orphans and Ashes, Try and track down a box, you know, buy it if you can. I, I would appreciate that. But if you know somebody that has it, just ask for the opportunity to just play around with how the components work together. Because uh, I am a man who loves his toys. Uh, a lot of the board games that I grew up on were like Fireball Island and Mousetrap. And it's just like it's part game and part toy. And so that was one of my design objectives for this game, too. I wanted it to be, be a fun tactile experience. Yeah, very toyetic. I love that. And I love the word toyetic. <laughs> oh, so I mentioned I wanted to talk about balancing Richard and Kale. So one of the things is that Richard is a much more popular character than Kale is. Like Kale's the straight man in the comics and Richard is the funny one. And he's really kind of got a Deadpool appeal. Like he he went viral in an animated video we put out called Slaughter Your World, which is to the tune of Part of Your World from The Little Mermaid. Uh, it's it's wonderful. It's, it's dark it. and gory. It's so, good. It's so bloody. Yeah. Really, it, it's... It's a perfect encapsulation of the looking for group humor in that it's you feel bad laughing at it, but it's so well done and it's so just colorful in its grittiness. Uh, so anyway, so the trick was the Kale figure does so much more than the Richard figure because we needed to find ways to convince people they wanted to play Kale. Now, it ends up most of the time when you tell people you're playing a game where you could either save orphans or burn orphans. People that aren't familiar with the comic are just like, well, I want to be the good guy. I want to be the one saving the orphans. So that's something we hadn't considered. But when we were selling specifically to our audience, we needed to make sure that Kale was fun and interesting and that he had the more dynamic strategy so that like on top of just making sure that both of them play well and score points at relatively the same way, but have you know tricks within the, the way they score points that someone who is better at the game could pull ahead. So on top of the normal things you are balancing in a two-player game, we also had to balance the fun factor of just playing those characters. And it's like it's like if you had a board game with Batman and Aquaman. You'd have to find some way to make people be like, yeah, all right, I'll be Aquaman this time. <laughs> so for folks who aren't familiar with the Looking for Group webcomic, could you share a little bit more about them and how this specific design was inspired from it? Looking for Group is a webcomic that's been published for, I believe, 15 years now, and it is a fantasy satire. It is very much a World of Warcraft type world, 
And again, 15 years ago, that was the big thing. And so uh, as a fantasy satire, it specifically leans a lot into the world of Warcraft elements with Kale being, uh, I believe, kind of like an analog to the Blood Elves, which are like, they look just like elves, which are usually good guys in fantasy, but those are the bad guy elves without being like, you know, drow, which was already becoming problematic 15 years ago. So, um, yeah, right from the first storyline, it's uh, Richard the Warlock meeting this this blood elf uh, who's talking about how he's going to go out there and and be the good force in the universe. And Richard's just like, no, that's not what your people do. You are as evil as I am. And Richard is constantly trying to show him the way, show him how to be evil. And in one of the earliest comics, they go into a town together and the guards stop them because Richard's there. And Richard's remark is like, now that orphanage attacked me. <laughs> and that became like, a, a, if there was one motto, if there was one like line that everyone remembered from the comic, it's that one. And we made t-shirts of it about, you all saw it, the orphanage attacked me. And that was basically of the three designs that I uh, pitched for what a looking for group board game would be. I knew one of them had to be entirely based on that because it was so synonymous with what the looking for group tone is and just a single line that captures the comedy of what that comic is all about. That's amazing. And as you started to develop and play test it, what did that initial, uh, I guess, design look like and how did it change? I had a lot of concepts for what the figures would be, what the components would be. And in the design, the struggle was, well, how, how are we going to mimic this since we don't actually have any components we eventually got 3d printers uh, during the development of it but it was like the pitch started in early 2015 i think we got it fully published in 2017 and so like sometime in there we got a 3d printer but it was just after i started the design on the game but largely the game um the game kind of came to me fairly close to what the final version would be in that I knew it would be tile laying. I had an idea that the tiles would be very similar to uh, zombies, which I know is not a super popular game, but it is very much in line with the games that I grew up on. It is also a very toyetic game. And so with that in mind, I was able to visualize, okay, so it's not going to be a board. It's going to be tile laying. We're going to have to figure out the, 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 um, mechanic for how we lay them out to make sure that we actually have these functioning orphanages. We don't want to end up with dead ends. So that took a lot of playtesting and that wasn't the fun side of the playtesting. And then the other side of it was just making sure that the two characters were balanced against each other and also that there was like a ticking time clock. So uh, we haven't talked about it, but the board itself could win because in addition to Richard and Kale, there is the fire in the orphanage. And after everyone takes their turn, the fire spreads and it could potentially be taken out the orphans. So a lot of that was was a lot of like um, tinkering. We had to figure out how many hit points an orphan should have, uh, terminology like, is it okay to say that they have hit points or do we just say two fires on the same orphan removes them from the board? Do we say removes them from the board or do we lean into it and be like, they are dead, 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 they burned to death uh, and screamed. And so I think we kind of went with both. We implied that we were gonna use like a lose, uh, like, uh, um, we were going to allude to these things and then just like we flat out said like, but this is what we've been alluding to in case you haven't figured it out. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that was a lot of it because in the original design, the fire was way too aggressive and it just burned the whole orphanage down and nobody scored any points. So it was a lot about toning the fire down, 
making sure the idea of who is controlling the fire because it spreads according to certain immutable rules and then the player who last uh it's the player who last went uh, you know i'm even kind of confused right now because it went through several variations but like deciding who makes the tie-breaking decisions about like if you follow all the immutable rules and there's still multiple places that the fire can spread to that and then making sure that that wasn't too technical because this is supposed to be a light game that is more for our audience than it was for the board game crowd. Okay. How did you make sure to capture the different characters' personalities? And was that also incorporated into the mechanisms? Yeah, so that was the jumping off point. Before we even had a game, we had the characters, we had the comic, and we knew that any game we made had to tie into that. One of the designs that I gave was basically an abstract game, and it was like on a 15 by 15 grid. I never really developed it further than enough to pitch it, so I don't even remember exactly how the mechanics work, but it was similar in that Kale and Richard were both trying to get to the same goal, and it was kind of like uh, two kings in chess in that they can never get too close to each other, and so as you're navigating the grid, you have to stay away from the other player, and it was fairly abstract, and it didn't have the personality. It was like Orphans and Ashes without the personality, frankly. So um, in the second pitch, the one that became Orphans and Ashes, it was like, so here's how these characters play out. This is how this is a Kale character. This is a Richard character. It's not just this is a, you know, a plastic blob in the shape of Kale. It's like, no, this is Kale. He is the hero. He is the one that scores points for doing something heroic. So in the design of it, everyone has two unique powers, one of which is the point scoring power. And so it was definitely decided the way the characters score points reflects who they are in the comic. And that really became, uh, like, it, it's fairly obvious with Kale and Richard. And then we have an expansion that introduced Benny, who's kind of the healer for hire. And in the comics, she's really morally gray in that she will only heal you if it personally profits her. See, that was Because she is an incredible debt. Yeah, exactly. She's in debt and her only uh, money-making skill is healing. So that's how it plays out in the comics. So in the, in the game... We gave these this more elaborate rule scoring, uh, sorry, uh, point scoring rule where she can't score points on her own. She can only score points if she gives somebody immunity to fire and then on their turn, they use that immunity to fire. Uh, it, you know, it, it's more elaborate than the base game, but it's also an expansion. Expansions is where you kind of get a little more elaborate with the rules. And again, it was perfectly in line with her character. And then the other new character that was released in the expansion was uh, Suba, who is technically Kale's animal companion, but he has little to no control over her. And so in the comics, uh, sometimes she is doing what he says and going and killing the bad guys. And sometimes she just jumps on him and mauls him. And so we decided to incorporate that into the room. I say we, I was the designer and there was really not a lot of other people developing this game with me. So I decided that Suba would uh, basically have either Richard or Kale's win condition. You can either save the orphans or you can kill them and you randomly determine that at the beginning of the game. And so was it your decision to add on this expansion or is that something that Blind Ferret decided on? That was uh, one of the, no, that, yeah, I guess that was part of the pitch. It's like, it's going to be a Kale and Richard game. It's going to be a two player game, but with even one expansion, we can make it a four player game. This is the way it becomes like the same dynamic works just with more players. Yeah. And we would introduce more characters um, because I was also doing the, the, the business side, like the product development side of this. I realized later on that the mistake was making such a an expensive expansion. It's basically as expensive to make the expansion as it is to make the base game because it's just full of plastic, unique miniatures. 
But there's an expectation that expansions would be cheaper than a base game. So even though the only difference between the base game and the expansion is that the tiles, which is the cheapest part of manufacturing that game, we have to cut the cost by quite a bit. I think think we sell the base game for like 40 or 50 bucks and the expansion for 20 bucks. But the cost to produce them is about the same. And that's just psychology of marketing so yeah because yeah i was gonna ask because i remember we've talked before offline but uh during the manufacturing of the game did you have any difficulties with publishing because i do remember there was one component that got a little (laughs) bit wonky (laughs) so originally this was supposed to come out at gen con 2015 and uh we'd gotten in touch with the company that produced the looking for group role-playing game box set we were very happy with them up till that point They uh, showed us the prototypes. The prototypes worked exactly like we wanted. They just weren't the colors that we asked for. They were just all, uh, I think they were all just white. So um, we were moving along. They were constantly coming back to us with these weird updates about how they had to try spray painting the, the plastic now. It's like, all right, I thought these would just be molded in a color, but all right. And then it was very close to when we were expected delivery and they were like, we're sorry, we cannot get these to you. We can get everything except for the miniatures to you. And it's like, without the miniatures, this game is nothing. It is just tiles to make an orphanage that does nothing. It doesn't burn. There's no orphans in it and there's no one to go in and help or hurt these orphans. So uh, we, I, I talked to the boss about the options because we had the whole booth was going to be dedicated to Orphans and Ashes debut. We bought these giant towers that were advertising Orphans and Ashes. Oh, geez. And we technically didn't have Orphans and Ashes. So I got in touch with Meeple Source, uh, which was a friend of ours, or a connection anyway, a business connection. We said, like, we just need, like, enough generic, generic wooden tokens to fill this many boxes X number of them have to be this color. X number have to be that color. And can you get us that? And they looked at the order and they were like, so there's only one issue. We can't get you the same exact five different colors or four different colors across all the boxes, but we can get you enough that every individual box has the variety of colors. And so we ordered the boxes. We got everything for the game, except for the miniatures. The rule book did not mention that it doesn't come with miniatures or or that it comes with these wooden pawns because it was never intended to and we weren't going to make that change so uh yeah we got those games we sold them either in the end it was at cost or maybe like pennies of profit per game but it was basically just this was the plan for this year this was what we had to do and so we sold these weird versions of the game and then we told anyone that bought them so when you when we figure out this uh the plastic components come back to see us next year at the booth or get in touch with us through our website and we will get you the plastic pieces. So then we went to a whole other manufacturer, got them to recreate the box, recreate the tiles, recreate the book and actually produce the plastic pieces properly, which was not that challenging. The design was challenging, but the production of those should not have been a hurdle. So I don't know what it was that uh, made that first company just not be able to deliver on what they promised and what we had paid them for. But the second company did it uh, exactly to spec, exactly what we asked for. And we ordered extra copies of all the plastics so that when we handed out or so that when people that bought our game the first year got in touch with us, we can also supply them with the plastic pieces. 
but yeah, that, that was not fun. That was a bad day. Oh, jeez. Yeah, I was going to say, because I remember hearing that story. And then also when you did have the plastic pieces put together correctly, there was a certain color of fire that got misquoted on oh, how many. Yes. <laughs> so there's supposed to be, uh, I believe, 100 pieces of fire in total. 50 of them yellow, and that's the natural fire that's burning. 50 of them red, and those are the ones that the Richard character is supposed to be playing. And they gave us 50 total, which is technically enough to play the game. In fact, oh, no, sorry. It wasn't supposed to be 50 for Richard. It was 15 for Richard and 50 of the yellow. And uh, what they did was 15 for Richard and then 35 yellow, total of 50, which is not what we wanted. And so the game is playable with the 35 yellow. But it if people aren't putting out the fire, which is an option, and if the orphanage is spreading quite wide, then you can run out of the yellow tokens. 35 is like the minimum that you can play your game and not probably not have to worry about it. But yeah, so I did say that the second company got it perfect. They made that one mistake, but actually, you know what? I think that was my mistake. I think I signed off on something I shouldn't have. I should have caught it in one of the uh, like prototype review passes. It's so funny. Yeah, I ended up house ruling that if you end up using up all of those fires, the game's over and you know the fire just ate up the, the orphanage. Yeah, that's a good house rule. There's a couple of things that I would definitely do differently. Uh, I might, instead of making it, you have to get all the orphans, I would have made it first to like five or 10. That scoreboard gives the expectation that you're supposed to have like 25 points. You are never going to get that high. And so the scoreboard should have been redesigned. But that's a lot of that is just uh, first time designer and being developed by the designer, which is just a mistake. We really should have hired an outside person to look at it. But again, we were targeting our audience, not a board game audience. So the game that we made was perfectly satisfactory for our audience. And therefore, the what the money we spent on it was exactly what we intended to spend on it. It's just that we've also gone to the game conventions like Gen Con, sold it to a gaming audience, and then they have valid critiques of the game being 75% of what it should be. So speaking of sharing it at Gen Con, you... Uh built the game for a specific audience and then began to share it with more. So it's good to really um, curious about what was the reception like showing it off at conventions. So you, you've spoken a little bit to that, but curious about how, also how did it feel for you uh, to, to share what you had put together? So reception was generally positive, but uh, also the negative was quite negative. So and it was all basically tickling the same id factor of like it is a ridiculous game with a dark sense of humor. And if you are on board for that sense of humor, great. This is the game for you. And if you're even just like somewhere in the neighborhood of that sense of humor, seeing the booth at Gen Con will usually make you chuckle. will draw people into the booth and you'll want to see, like, is this game actually about burning orphans? Like, how is that actually possibly a real game and then you get to be like oh no but it's based on this comic with this long legacy and here's where the origin of that joke is and like you get to spell it out you're not just like yeah we decided to go with the darkest theme we could possibly think of it's like no there's there's story here and all of that tends to draw people in and make them more and more curious about the game and people that uh don't know the comic and learn about the comic through the game it makes them curious about the comic so it was good audience building uh product and going to get gen con and origins and uh spiel 
those were all good opportunities to introduce the comic to a new audience through the game. So in that way, it was successful. The downside, of course, is that it is dark and it is about some of the most innocent people you can think of in a horrible situation. And one of the characters is trying to kill them. And some of the people that at Blind Ferret are like, oh, just lean into the fact that one of the players is trying to save them. And my opinion is like, no, just acknowledge it. It's like, yes, it's a dark theme. Yes, we went there. Yep. Yes, I totally understand for people that don't like that. And I am not forcing anyone to buy it. And if you even want to get something off your chest, I am willing to sit there and listen. Um, and I know personally, it was a strange game to develop because before we're going to blind ferret, I was a teacher and um, I have like a series of, of children's uh, storybooks, like uh, about a, a class of kindergartners. And so like to go from writing kids stories to publishing orphans and ashes was definitely, you know, a switch of a change of platform for me and how I talk about that game in like on social media is usually reserved for very specific spaces. Like I'll talk about it through the LFG Facebook page, but yeah. I won't tend to talk about it on my own. But like when I won the D infinity award for it, I was like, all right, I'll talk about winning the award and I will allude to the game, but I don't <laughs> want, you know, my grandmother to know that I made a game about burning orphans. Oh my goodness. So, yeah. So personally it's, it's mixed. It's like, I will never deny that I made this. It's got my name on it. I didn't like design it under a pseudonym. And it may be, you know, off center from what I normally do and my normal sense of humor. But at the same time, I designed it for the company I work for. And it was mandated of me that I come up with a game for the comic. And that is what the comic is about. So I delivered on what I was asked to do. And I do stand by the game. I think it is fun. I like the comic because it has that sense of humor. So I'm not throwing the comic under the bus and being like washing my hands of it. It is it is what it is about, and I am responsible for continuing that legacy of the comic book through the game. No, I definitely think you stuck to the IP in a great way because I I personally love the dark humored comic book, and I like all the other Blind Fair comics. They're really hilarious, and they are my type of humor. But yeah, I mean, if it's not yours, then it's not yours. But that's the same with anyone who looks at like the rising game that the op has. It's like okay, if I don't like Marvel, I'm not going to buy their Thanos. But hey, maybe I like SpongeBob, so I'm going to get the Plankton Rising. So it's like, you know what, pick pick and choose. It's a fun game. And if you're not about the theme, you're not about the theme, but that's like any other game. And also, like, we could have just made an adventure game. And then if somebody was like, wow, I like this adventure game, I'm going to go check out the comic. And they realize, oh, <laughs> oh, that's what this comic is about. Yeah, there's adventure, but Burning Orphans is a major part of the game. Like, we were honest to what our game and what our comic are about. And if people are going to judge us for that, that's fine. You're judging us for an honest reason. For sure. And then as far as how long it took from the initial pitching of the game to the better version that had the plastic pieces, how long do you think it took for that inspiration to publication? Oh, I don't need to speculate. I know that it started in January of 2015 and it released fully at Gen Con of 2016. So had it not been for the production error, this would have been pitched in January and released in August of the same year, wow. which is uh, yeah, an quick. insane production schedule. Uh, that's kind of the blind ferret way. Uh, if Somer had his way, it wouldn't have sat on the shelf for a year. He knew not to release it just whenever. Or did he? Hold on. Now I'm not sure if we released it before Gen Con. Oh, okay. I'm not positive. We may have released it before Gen Con 
And then Gen Con was like the big reveal, but no, no, because I, oh no, the, the production side of it, finding the new company, going through all the stages again. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say I'm pretty confident that the Gen Con of the next year was our full release. So it was about a year and a half for this to go into full production, which I do not know how we pulled that off. And I don't know how we came so close to pulling off like a six month turnaround because like three months of that was shipping. Wow, that's so fast. Yes, especially for like <laughs> original plastic components. Like we had artists to design the pieces, but then we needed a 3D artist to uh, create them so that we could send the 3D files yeah, to the manufacturer. Yeah, mold for that. Uh, that is quick. Yeah, and the mold was made. Again, it was uh, some kind of weird painting problem. So we got the prototypes in that time. Like it's, it's ridiculous that we managed to get it done that quickly. That's so weird because, I mean – how were they not able to buy different colored plastics? Was it just too expensive? I don't know. I never got to the bottom of what the problem was, only that they could not deliver the colored versions to us. And I don't even know if they offered us like a, just a, a uncolored version. We probably would have passed on it because it just would have made the game uh, harder to play just because you can't uh, disseminate what's going on on the board yeah. as quickly. But yeah, I don't know. It, it's such so weird that of all the things that could have made that game not be produced in just a couple of months, that that is what was the trip over was. It's really interesting. The journey of uh, all of the different components and pieces and how that impacts uh, publication, I just think is really fascinating. <laughs> the difference between just a straight up card game versus one that is De- part dexterity, part push your luck. I mean, there's a lot happening, um, which is really, really, really cool. So now that also, it's oh. so uh, we'd produced a couple of games before that. One of them was that looking for group box set, which all paper. And then before that, we'd also done the least I can do card game. So again, it's just about printing. It's not about manufacturing. So I think the expectations for how long it would take to create the board game, plastic pieces and all, was not realistic. Yeah, influenced by (laughs) quick prints. Uh, Oh, yeah. So now that it's published, how do you think the game's doing? Um, How, especially for the audience that it was made for, how'd they receive it? Are folks playing it? Um, What's been the buzz for the audience that it was built for? It's hard to tell. It sold very well. I can tell you that much, but we were never able to get a distribution deal. So almost all items that sold were sold from us directly. We have an online store that sells directly to our audience. And then the ones that got out to the game were because we were going to a lot of conventions at the time. Some of them gaming conventions, some of them comic and uh, comic focused. Yeah. And it is the kind of, it's, it's a talk piece. It's an easy sell from our point of view. And it's something that people can bring home. And it's like, it's such a novel thing that even if you don't know the comic, there were people that were willing to buy it. I just, I don't know how many people actually took it off their shelf or how many bought it so that they could say, I got a game about burning orphans. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so, you know, there's a few reviews of it up on our website. They're fairly well reviewed. People that talk to me personally about it say they like it, but who's not going to say they like it? Um, the the main thing that I hear universal praise for what is the plastic components because they are clever. They are well-designed. They look good. I've seen them painted up by fans that were just super enthusiastic about it, but otherwise it's got a middling rating on board game geek. And yeah, that's about it. That's about as removed from our audience as I can tell you about the reception. Okay. And then for you as the designer, what was your least and your favorite experience in designing this game? 
well, I mean, the production problems were definitely <laughs> least. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but even yeah, after that, after it was released, I've run it at Gen Cons and uh, several other cons for years, and like. I'll play a hundred games over the weekend or maybe even more. And I'll be having as much fun talking to people, like kind of emceeing the games as I go. Like it's always fun. Me and a table full of people that are learning the game for the first time. You know, I figure out if they know the comic or not, if not, I go into the, what's the comic spiel. And then I go into the game. If they are not uh, experienced gamers, like if I'm at a comic convention, I go into the basic version of the rules. If they are, then I'll go into the more advanced version of the rules, which is, you know, quicker. Like the quickest pitch is they know the comic, they know board games. And now I can just go into what the specific rules are. I've got my jokes in and out. Like that's, that's probably the best part. Just being at a con and telling people about this game. The, uh, the worst part about that is that the rules that I am explaining at the table are the right rules. They are just more clear when I'm explaining them than what's in the rule book. Yeah. The rule book has almost no visual aids. A lot of time it's written ambiguously. There are definitely some things that with a, a proper editing it would have been clearer. And uh, we did eventually do like a, a walkthrough video, but it's not, it's not a walkthrough of the quality of people that do walkthrough videos professionally. It's our approximation of what a walkthrough video should be, uh, yeah. you know, done quickly and cheaply. Which is the blind ferret way. So, I was say, um, if you need one, I could hook you up with a person. <laughs> oh, I I have connection. You know, I have. Yeah, that's fair. Connection. <laughs> so, yeah, if if we if I was allowed to make one that much more expensive and just like if time and money was not an object, this could have been a better game uh, because time and money are both objects and very important to my boss. Uh, the rule book is probably where the game suffers the most. But if you've played the game at a con with me, hopefully it was a memorable enough experience that you know how the game game is properly supposed to be played. It is very fun as someone who has played it with you at a con or being forced to show other people how to play at a con. (laughs) (laughs) Now when you say forced. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) no friendship. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, so I, I'm really curious about what made Blind Ferret decide to create games for the Looking for Group and Least I Could Do, and what other games have been developed for the LFG comic. So the why is that we were going to Gen Con when we didn't have games. It was just that because it was based on World of Warcraft, because there was a lot of, cro- not based on, but like because you could see the world of Warcraft similarities with uh, looking for group because there was a lot of crossover with the audience for the conventions we were going to for the comic. Uh, and Gen Con has like a, an indie comic section, even for some indie comics that don't have uh, games attached to them. And so the next logical thing was, all right, let's design a game. Now I wasn't at the company when the first game was developed, which is the least I can do card game, oh my gosh. which is just a light party game. You are trying to, you are to playing the girls. guys from the comic. You're trying to pick up <laughs> girls at a bar and the better the girls, the more points you score. And then the second one was ladies night, which, you know, added the ladies cast and, and made it a little less misogynistic. Um, Cause there's no denying what that first game is. And then they so, added another um, one where you could pick up a llama. <laughs> well, yes, that's where things get weird. <laughs> yeah, what is it, like Sloppy Seconds or something? Sloppy Seconds, because yeah. it's our second expansion. And because there's, you know, a, you can pick up a T-Rex. Anyway, it's a great game. That one I designed. The other two were designed uh, by a freelancer. 
Um, so yeah, so that was the main thing. It's like, we're going to these gaming conventions anyway. Gen Con, even before we had games, was one of our best conventions as far as, you know, selling product. So uh, it just made sense to cater more to the market. Least I can do, card game came out. It was really successful. Coincidentally, around then is when I pitched the Looking for Group role-playing game, which uh, my boss really liked. Well, he wasn't even my boss at the time because I was a freelancer pitching it. He liked the game. He liked the idea. He liked me. So he brought me on board. He brought me to some Gen Cons. And so at that point, it was like we had one Gen Con was dedicated to least I can do card game. One was dedicated to least I can do role playing game. It sold even better. Looking for group tends to sell better than least I can do at Gen Con in general. So let's try and have a game release every year. So that's why I was mandated to come up with those games early on. And then for several years in a row, we had a game or an expansion come out. Uh, the last of which was Storytime with Dick, which is a uh, dice-rolling storytelling game that I am fairly proud of. I was not sure how well it was going to work. I'd played some storytelling games before, and it never felt like it was actually a game, and it never felt like storytelling was being like... There, were, it, there wasn't rules for storytelling. It was just, here's some things to help you tell a story. And so I was like, there's got to be a way to actually crack it and make it more of a storytelling game. Uh, sorry, make the storytelling more of a game. And so with Storytime with Dick, uh, you, it, there's more of a point system. There is uh, set matching to the dice you're rolling. And so there's some objectives. You're trying to score points based on storytelling cards that you've got in your hand. But what the story is, is up to you. And so the different symbols, the six different symbols on the dice, each one represents an element that you have to work into the story. And it's up to you whether you want to make it looking for group themed. It is a looking for group themed game because Richard is one of the six faces on the dice. And every time you roll a Richard, another player gets to mess with your story. So if you roll, uh, I think there's nine dice. So if you roll, you know, a character, a conflict, a menace, and three Richards, then the players get to mess with your story three times, killing off some of your characters, untwisting some of your twists, and you've got to try and recover. And so at the end, the dice that have not been eliminated by Richard are the ones that you're trying to score. So there's also like a psychological element where you're trying to tell the story and lean into some details that are actually the expendable ones based on the cards in your hand, so that if Richard thinks, oh, that's an important one, they take those out, then it's like, aha, well, I still just needed three protagonists, which is what I had on the board even after you were done killing the main villain of my story. So uh, it's fun, it's quick, it's light, and uh, it's, it's a good icebreaking party game that the year we debuted it was one of the most fun Gen Cons I had for just running demos, because... I was the expert of the Orphans for Ashes section, but whenever that was cooling down or whenever, uh, because Orphans and Ashes takes longer. So I would get a game going and then those games are occupied, but story time with Dick, you could churn out games in like 10, 15 minutes. You can play like four Orphans and Ashes, or sorry, you can play four story time with Dick in the time it takes to play one um, Orphans and Ashes. And so I would just be able to go back over to those tables, bring people in, tell the story game, get it started. Sometimes I would participate, sometimes it would just be examples. I would try and do different examples every time so that it wasn't just the same pitch. And so I always had that unique energy of like creating on the fly. And a lot of people really seemed to leave happy. It was a nice small game, so it was really easy for them to just uh, impulse buy it. And it demoed really quickly. So uh, Storytime with Dick kind of came and went. It really only had one big convention, but that one convention was super fun for me. 
It does come in really cool packaging. It's like a nice little purse. I remember you carrying your little cards around, which leads me to my next question. So Board Game Bento, when did that come into play? And explain to anybody who doesn't know what it is, what it is. All right. So one day, Will, my coworker, got a loot crate delivered to work. And my boss was like, what is that? He had a million questions and just was reverse engineering how subscription boxes work in his head as he was analyzing this thing. And within like probably by the end of the week, he was like, I want to do a subscription box. And he figured out not just the the content curation part of it, but the marketing side of it. And he had a whole idea of how the whole business would work. So we started with Comic Bento and uh, every month people were getting trade paperbacks set to a theme. Uh, we had our, our look, our name, we had our whole brand figured out. And Comic Bento uh, kicked off pretty successfully. And so the second we, we knew we wanted more Bentos, we liked this brand of bento subscription boxes. So then the question was, what was our follow-up going to be? I came up with a whole bunch of ideas. One of them was like RPG miniature supplies. So like painting supplies and different like art books and stuff. And so we really just did not care for that one. One of them was like unique prints from uh, artists that are internet famous and he didn't care for that one or he liked it, but he was like, it's not sustainable. Once you get a couple of boxes, you don't need more and more prints. You're going to run out of room. So the board game one was the one that he liked the most, but was the most challenging because it's like, what size box is it going to be? Because board games can be gigantic and small and the price doesn't always reflect the physical size of the box. And um, we had a couple of connections in manufacturing, but because we were doing everything ourselves and not really reaching out to developers and editors and whatnot, we hadn't made a lot of connections in the board game publishing side of it and so uh it was just a matter of like if this is what we're doing we need to cold call we need to make connections quickly so that once we launch we never have like a month where we just don't have any boxes and we don't want to just do hey we made one good connection so every single box is going to have one of their games so it was a real logistic hurdle getting it figured out but once we figured out like this is the optimal size so that if we end up with three smaller your games on the smaller side it's not going to look that empty, but if we end up with a couple of games on the bigger side, it's going to be able to contain them. And then the goal became like, we need to have uh, a large game, a medium game and a small game in every box or, you know, two mediums or like one large or two smalls, as long as it was like uh, spatial awareness in the curation. And then also we needed a certain uh, total value for the box for the games in the box. So sometimes a smaller game was actually the most valuable one, but as long as there was a big game in there so that when you opened it, you also had that like, wow, this is a full box of board games. Uh, we figured out that the price, it was $50 a month and then, you know, reduction based on how people, uh, how long people committed to their subscription. Um, yeah. So like we got it, all kicked off pretty well. I managed to get enough connections so that we had the first few boxes lined up before we launched. And uh, from there, yeah, uh, it, it went from there. It went for about two years, I think. And um, in its last year, and we, we'd had like steady growth for the first year. And then it kind of um, plateaued, which was not ideal, but was not the worst thing. But while it was plateaued, Comic Bento took a nosedive. And then we started hearing things about like Loot Crate was considering going bankrupt because they couldn't pay the janitors oh, and things were like just bad in the subscription box space. It's like, it was a flash in the pan and the bubble had burst and Comic Bento's subscribers reflected that Board Game Bento's didn't. It was like, okay, so maybe this is a box that will surpri- survive the burst 
it's not the numbers we were hoping for, but it is enough that we can sustain it. We can just keep going. If, if this is the only thing we ever get out of this box, it's paying for itself. It's paying for everyone involved. We're all turning a little profit. It's getting some exposure for the people that are involved. And everyone seems to be having a good time. And then I was going around Gen Con one year, I think maybe even the same year that Storytime with Dick came out. Mm-hmm. I was telling, I was making new connections. Uh, people were happy with us on the publishing side. A lot of people had heard about us. They heard good things from working with us. And it was just, it was a really encouraging Gen Con for like people, like uh, I took meetings from people that contacted me. Usually I was the one making cold calls, but uh, some big companies were like, hey, we, we were wondering if you wanted to do a whole box themed around us because we had done that with Yellow a few months earlier. So it was like, this is great. And also one of the games that I wanted to get in there, Get Bit, it was one of the games that I'd wanted since the first shark, box. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the shark eating the, 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 um, the nipples. Yeah. <laughs> it's a wonderful game. It is one of my first, uh, my favorite games to open a board game night. So I finally got that publisher to agree to include it in one of our boxes. And I was like, this was a great Gen Con. Board Game Mento's doing okay. We're going to keep going forward. And then we got back from Gen Con. And within a couple of weeks, it's like, oh, we've lost two thirds of our subscribers. Just like that. And I was like, no. Oh, so the last couple of connections that I'd made for Board Game Bento, we got them, we got those boxes made, we sent them out, and uh, we knew right there that it's like, there's no point in trying to salvage this. It dropped too quickly. It reflects what else is going on in the industry and our own uh, um, experience with the industry. We, we can't cut costs. We can't do anything. This is exactly the box it can be at this point. We have to kill it. And so uh, we wrapped it up. It was unfortunate. But, you know, I got to be there from the beginning to the end. I got to learn. I got to make a lot of great connections. I got to play a ton of really cool board games, a lot of which I wouldn't have heard about and made a lot of cool connections. Uh, Danielle, you and I, our relationship uh, blossomed, our friendship through Board Game Bento and our board game connections. Oh, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, I am grateful for Board Game Bento and the whole experience. And, it's you know, I'm kind of sad that it's gone. It was a lot of fun for the time that I was spending on it. And then I know since you did start up the No Direction Network and you have continued working on that over the years while still being at Blind Ferret, I mean, I don't know if everybody who's been listening knows that we are hosted by you guys. So I figured like you could talk a little bit about that as well. Sure. So No Direction started as 3.5 Private Sanctuary. In 2008, Dungeons & Dragons was on its 3.5 edition. It was on its third and a half edition. It it sounds absurd, but that was just how they were numbering the game. So 3.5 Dungeons & Dragons was out at the time. I was a huge fan of it. I had just discovered podcasts, and I was like, I want to get it on podcasts. This is really an interesting thing because podcasts were still new in 2008. And I decided, you know what? I'm going to make a fan cast for Dungeons & Dragons. It is had such a positive impact. By then, I'd met my future wife. By then, uh, my girlfriend and probably even my fiance at that point through playing Dungeons and Dragons. And I just wanted to engage with the community in a new way and just just spend thirty minutes a week gushing about how great Dungeons and Dragons is. And then they announced fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons, and the announcement was catastrophic. It was like. Here's what playing Dungeons and Dragons 3.5 is like. Oh, we're all confused by the rules. This is nobody is actually having fun. Like this is an ad that the publisher of 3.5 put out to the world and it was so alienating to the audience and it changed my mission statement from just like a Dungeons and Dragons fan cast to supporting 3.5 to anyone that saw that commercial felt personally attacked and wanted to stick to that game. We're building a small community over here and, you know, 
people are going to go on to fourth edition and they'll continue to be Dungeons and Dragons fans of whatever the current edition is, but we'll always have this edition. And so we launched the website. It had uh, written reviews. It had a message board so that people can uh, interact with each other. And then it had the podcast, the one podcast, which was just me and Jay covering a topic related to 3.5 Dungeons & Dragons every week in a 35-minute episode. And then a few months into it, we heard that there was a company that uh, was a licensee of Dungeons & Dragons that, uh, because of 4th Edition, was losing that license and they were losing their main source of income. And so they decided that through a lot of you know technical but completely legal ways they were able to adapt 3.5 Dungeons Dragons into a new game called Pathfinder and they were going to do that we were like oh that's our mission statement we can help each other so we became friends with this company Paizo and uh had them on our podcast and we're kind of treating it like this is still technically 3.5 Dungeons Dragons and then the game came out and it was gorgeous and it was fun and it had improved on the 3.5 engine that it was built on and it just became so popular within our own gaming group that we even though we started a community to stick to 3.5 we converted to fourth uh, to what sorry never converted fourth edition we converted to pathfinder and then we had this website that was like well, what are we going to do about this so we started a second podcast called No Direction, which was all about Pathfinder, while Jay and I continued to do the 3.5 Dungeons & Dragons one, which slowly had more and more Pathfinder content on it. And eventually, it was clear that Pathfinder was here to stay. It was super successful. It outlasted Dungeons & Dragons 4th Edition, which was just kind of problematic in so many ways. Not not like socially problematic, but like the, the launch was terrible. The game was rushed. There were some mechanics. There was a lot of weirdness going on. And the game just was not fulfilling the Dungeons and Dragons numbers that it needed to. So Pathfinder for a while was the best-selling role-playing game in the world, even though it is basically a Dungeons and Dragons clone. It was outselling Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. And so from the network's point of view, this is clearly the this is clearly where the network is headed. So we changed from 3.5 Private Sanctuary to No Direction uh, Podcast.com as our URL, and it became the new flagship. 3.5 Private Sanctuary continued for several more years, but eventually we dropped the 3.5. It just became Private Sanctuary and became a different kind of Pathfinder podcast until eventually it petered out. And then uh, we expanded, but we expanded into more Paizo-related games. Paizo put out Starfinder, the sci-fi version of Pathfinder. So we put out No Direction Beyond, the sci-fi version of No Direction. And then Actual Plays, which is when people just get together and record themselves playing uh uh, role-playing games they became popular so we launched adventurous we launched stellar which was a pathfinder and a uh, starfinder actual play podcast and then we started getting topical shows back on and we were expanding and it got to the point that we had a podcast a day almost uh we release on weekdays and we had like four podcasts coming out one week five coming out another week it was like we'd love to expand we don't want to keep expanding towards Pathfinder for a couple of reasons. One is that second edition of Pathfinder was coming out and the playtest version of it was not to our liking. And we were like, shoot, if we don't like second edition, what are we like? What do we do with the network? And so we decided we need to branch out. We are more than just friends of Path Paizos that are putting out Pathfinder podcast content. We have become our own entity and we need to reflect that. And so where, what are other directions of interest to us that we can expand into? And board games was one of them. So we were already talking about like, we, we need a board game. We need a general interest podcast that 
works with our audience. It would be something that our audience would appreciate, but also would help maybe grow our audience by expanding into people that are primarily board game players and maybe are familiar with Pathfinder. And around the same time, Danielle, you came to me and said, like, I really want to get into podcasting. And it's like, I am your man, Danielle. <laughs> you, yep. you may have laughed to me several times now as far as your status in the board game community, but when it comes to podcasts, I can help you and you can help me. And so that's where... Uh, Game Design Unboxed became a member of the No Direction Network, became our first major podcast that is not related to Pathfinder or Starfinder or anything related to Paizo. And I am super happy to have you. We don't know how we're going to diversify our content in the future, because right now you're a bit of an outlier, but you're a very good <laughs> outlier. Like You've got your own audience. We've got our audience. There's not as much crossover as there should be. But I appreciate you, and I think there doesn't need to be that crossover. People that are coming looking for game design unboxed can find it. And if they happen to stay at No Direction, great. If not, I'm happy to help my friend, and I'm happy to help make a podcast that I'm a big fan of. And by help make, I mean, like, host whatever, very, uh, like, five steps removed. I have very little to do with the production of it. I don't want to make it sound like I'm taking any credit for the production of this podcast, only that whatever I am doing to help it get out there, I am more than happy to do it. Well, we appreciate it, Ryan. Thank you so much. (laughs) As you're kind of reflecting on your journey as a designer, we always like to ask, what's one piece of advice you would give to other designers? Be brave. I, most of my advancements just came from cold calling, from finding out that I had a connection to, uh, to blind ferret and being like, all right, this is a way that, I can use that connection to better myself and better them. So I made the pitch for the LFG board game. It went well, and we went from there. And then when uh, I was working as a teacher and hating that job, and I finally was just like, I want to work full-time at Blind Ferret. I don't care what position you find for me. I will be, you know, the mailroom boy. I will do whatever you need me to do just so that I can get my career back on the right path. And so I took took a leap there. I left a game, uh, a career that's supposed to be stable and supposed to be, you know, what a lot of people aspire to that I knew I didn't like and could not see myself doing for the next however many years before I retire and got back into the creative field that I'd always pictured myself in. And that worked out. And then it was just a matter of like board game mental only existed because I was willing to do the research, contact people, get stuff out there, make connections and just communicate with people to spend the whole Gen Con going around booth to booth and being like, hey, do you know Board Game Mento? Here's what we can do for you. Here's what you can do for us. So, yeah, be brave. If you've got an idea, take the time, develop it and find, figure out whatever you're afraid of and get over it. I think that's awesome advice. And I will say, just like for anyone who doesn't know, Ryan and I have been friends for years and we met at a Comic-Con because you know, I got adopted into his booth and stole his chair because <laughs> I was just talking to them about their their cool looking comic books that I'd never heard of before. And it's like just moved on from there, just making sure to talk to people and making those connections like it, it goes far. I mean, that's how all of us ended up where we are right now talking. Yeah, honestly, like so we were hanging out at the booth and then it's like, oh, you work at a printing company. And then, you know, the gears start turning. It's like, we do publishing, you do printing. There's something there. We became contacts before we became friends. And then it was just like, nothing else is happening here professionally between us, but we can stay friends. Right. And then we developed a wonderful friendship, Danielle, where you're one of my favorite people. Yeah. I even went to Canada to visit his family and, you know, mooch off of him being in Canada and see Montreal. But 
Yeah. <laughs> and so then, hey, Ryan, what is going on currently with you as a freelancer and a blind ferret? Like, do you, are you working on anything you can talk about? No, you know how that works. Oh, wait, no, no. There is a couple of things I can talk about. So <laughs> Blind Ferret, uh, I mentioned earlier, we've got our animation studio, Laughing Dragon. And so uh, I've kind of shumped it over. I'm not really a Blind Ferret employee anymore. I'm a Laughing Dragon Studios employee now. And uh, there's a couple of things that we do. We do our own original projects. And my main job here is pitch ideas for original projects. And then, you know, if the pitches get approved to develop them, and be like, this is what it could be as a series or a movie or whatever. So it's a lot of just like, creative output which i love and then something else we do is we work with other production companies to do animation for them uh either you know pick up animation for projects that just don't have time to do it uh entirely in their own studio or if it's uh, a company that's doing most of the production side but not actually animation and so i often get involved in that i will do touch-ups on scripts and one of my first tv credit no my first tv credit will be on moose which is an animated uh, short that's, no, no, sorry, an animated special that's coming out, uh, I believe, this December. And uh, it's a CBC production, the Canadian Broadcast Company. It's based on Robert Munch, who is a super famous author in Canada. I don't know. Do you know Robert Munch outside of Canada? I, no, no, Paperback no, Princess. No. Uh, no? Wow. I don't think so, oh, Denise. No, Paperback Princess. Okay. I didn't know the author, but I the definitely author. know the story, yes. The author of the Paperback Princess is Robert Munch, and he has about a thousand books. And so one of them is Moose, about a kid who just meets a moose uh, in the forest and tries to make him a pet, brings him home. And then the animated special is kind of like the follow-up to the book, where he is now a member of the family, the moose is, and they go on adventures together and just have regular family adventures, but with a moose. I love that. Like there's a garage sale, but with a moose. That's so Canadian. <laughs> it's not that Canadian. Like, yes, it's very Canadian, but it's not my experience as a Canadian. Good to know. So yeah, that's happening. And I've got a lot more RPG credits. Like all my game design is focused on RPG again. I've got some Pathfinder 2nd Edition credits. Uh, the coolest of which is from Pathfinder, sorry, uh, Lost Omens Legends, which is a book all about just like, Here's a dozen NPCs from the world. Let's really dive into their backstory. Whereas usually NPCs are presented as like, here's a paragraph of who they are in case you want to incorporate them into your game. This is like, no, these are the movers and shakers of the Pathfinder role-playing game campaign setting and really get to know them so that you can base entire campaigns around interacting with them. Uh, so that was cool. And I've got some non-Pathfinder writing credits that I really want to be announced any day now yeah. because um, yeah, it's like a dream project for me that I am involved in this and it's expanded and that I am ready to sign a contract for a follow-up project, still waiting for the first project to be fully announced and then for my involvement in that project to be announced. So that's, that's what I'm really looking forward to next. It's really exciting. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration to Publication, Episode 16, Orphans and Ashes. Thanks again, Ryan, for joining us. Hey, um, anyone, for anyone looking to find you, where can you be reached? Uh, my main social media is Facebook. So if people are just looking for me, you look up Ryan Costello on Facebook. Let me see if I can find the specific Facebook URL for me. I bet I can. I bet I can find it. Oh, there we go. KD.Ryan.Costello. KD stands for no direction. A lot of the time on social media to distinguish myself from the other Ryan Costellos, I'll add a KD in there somewhere. 
Uh, but mainly the network stuff is nodirectionpodcast.com. And there's a link in there to a Discord, which is where I hang out a lot of time, do a lot of my interaction with the fans, and where we publish a podcast just about every day of the week, or at least weekday, publish a blog related to gaming every day of the week. It's mostly Pathfinder stuff. It's almost exclusively um, role-playing game stuff, but of course we also have Game Design Unboxed every other Wednesday. And uh, we've got just this amazing, talented staff that... I don't know if we spotlight as uh, much as we should because some of them, they're just, everybody is amazing. We've got just people that work for Paizo that spend their free time writing about Pathfinder for us. And a lot of people that are aspiring game designers or just passionate about gaming will talk about their GM experiences or will help you with uh, world building. So we've got like 25 or some odd people that are working for the network in some capacity which counts the people that are cast members on the actual place, which takes up a big chunk of that 25. But still, we've got at least a dozen people that are actively writing blogs and participating in the network and representing the network on our social media. So if you are a fan at all of anything that No Direction has ever put out, I recommend you try and track them down and just give them an attaboy and tell them how much you appreciate what they do. Wonderful. This is your host, Denise, and you can find me on Twitter at year 23. And then... And then your other host, Danielle, you can find me on Facebook at DMR Creative Group, Twitter at Creative DMR, and then on Instagram at Token Gamer, and that's G-A-Y-M-E-R. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> this has been another episode of Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. If you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts, check out nodirectionpodcast.com. Join us next time.